You're listening to sermon audio from Piperton Baptist Church in Piperton, Tennessee. For more information on how you can get connected with PBC, please visit www.pipertonbaptist.com. All right. Y'all go ahead and turn with me to Galatians chapter 5, <clears throat> verse 1. Galatians 5, we're going to read through uh, verses 1 through 15 in part one of a part two series that I'm going to share over the next two Sundays. Y'all know that chorus uh, from that Alan Jackson song? I know y'all, don't, y'all only listen to Christian music, but some of you may actually listen to country. And in case you do, there's this singer named Alan Jackson. He wrote a song. I want y'all to sing it with me. Where I come from. Uh, there you go. Where I come from, a lot of front porch sitting. Where I come from, trying to make a living and working hard to get to where I come from. Do you know that song won all kinds of awards? CMA Awards, Song of the Year. It gave Alan Jackson his uh, first Grammy Award for Best Country Song. Popular song, right? Catchy tune, obviously, right? Really bad theology. (laughs) You know, you can work hard all you want, but you ain't getting to heaven by working hard. Paul writes a letter to the new Galatians believers, right? That's, it's broken down into six parts, or six chapters. And really, you can break those six chapters down into two-chapter increments that kind of lay out the purpose, the, the plan of the book, all right? Forty years ago, Chuck Swindoll called these sections, the first two chapters, the source, that's the authentic gospel, the defense, that's chapters three and four, the superior gospel, and then now what we're going to talk about today, uh, start today on chapters five and six, the impact the liberating gospel. But today, I want to call them these these two chapter increments. I want to call them Paul's personal biography, that's chapters one and two. Then Paul's doctrinal basis, that was chapters three and four, which we just wrapped up last week. And then today, Paul's practical bearing in chapters five and six. Last week, we looked at the history uh, of the meaning and the meaning of the split in the family tree. Remember Galatians 4.21, two bloodlines, spirit of the devil, spirit of God. The let me handle this bloodline, the let God handle this bloodline. The striving and impersonal bloodline and the ongoing intimacy bloodline. But now Paul's going to move into a different sphere. He's going to move into the practical implications of all that amazing, freeing, superior grace. So let's read this together. These are the words of God in Galatians 5. Verses 1 through 15, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. You're severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you've fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. You were running so well. (laughs) Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty whoever he is but if I brothers still preach circumcision why am I still being persecuted in that case the offense of the cross has been removed I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves 
For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. I want to ask Jonathan Hudson to come and ask God's blessings on the message today. Jonathan. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you humbly as sinners incapable of reaching heaven without your grace. And we thank you for the opportunity to be here and join together in Christian fellowship and worship to you today. Uh, We pray for those who are not able to be with us. We ask your blessing upon them that they can overcome the challenges in their lives and join us when we meet again. Um, We also pray for Went as he delivers your message today. And we ask that you open our hearts to receive that message. All these we ask in your son's name, in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you, brother. Amen. All right. So Paul's done with his personal biography in chapters one and two, done with his doctrinal basis in chapters three and four. Now he gives this practical bearing in chapters five and six. An honest and practical two-chapter closing. Winston Churchill said, men, uh, men occasionally stumble over the truth, but most of them just pick themselves up and hurry off as if nothing happened. <laughs> and Paul is fearful that the Galatians are doing just that. They've stumbled over the truth of the gospel, and now they're just moving on. So he's going to rephrase the agreement that the Galatians are making with the Judaizers in simple, honest terms, right? Like the Cliff Notes version, right? Uh, y'all ever seen those honest commercials? You know, that just tell a tell you bluntly, you know, they don't put any fluff on it. They just tell it how it is. I'm going to, we got one of those. I'm going to show you this morning. Ah, beautiful day. I'd call it perfect, but it's missing something. Don't you think? Ah, there it is. This morning just wasn't complete until your first cup of coffee, right? Yeah, there's nothing quite like a steaming cup full of an addictive drug in the morning. I'm Roger, and I'd love to tell you about Horton Brand Warm Addictive Brown Stuff. Please enjoy this footage of velvety smooth beans, followed by a well-shot close-up of a hot brown liquid that's brewed by mixing heated water with the roasted, smashed up seeds of a flowering shrub native to Southern Africa and tropical Asia. I only showed you that to remind you you desperately need your fix. (laughs) How could you forget? You see, these small brown seeds are a naturally occurring source of the world's most widely consumed central nervous system stimulant, caffeine. While most brain-altering substances are outlawed or at least tightly controlled by the government, This entirely legal psychoactive drug is enjoyed by basically every person you know on a daily basis, completely unrestricted and with zero cultural stigma. In fact, it's openly celebrated by your friends, family and morning television personalities. Smells so good, I can't wait to add flavors and sweetener to distract from the natural flavor of this thing I claim to love and not be addicted to. I do like it. It's just that... 
two sugars and that hazelnut creamer make it. I'm not addicted. Junkies like him keep me a harvester of brown seeds in business, but not just me. Also me, a distributor of overpriced addictive sludge. It also comes in pumpkin flavored, if you'd prefer that to the wet cigar boiled asphalt flavor that occurs naturally. I do. Great, that'll be $11 and <laughs> Here's a cup with your name just butchered on it to prove that you will let literally anyone treat you literally however they want as long as they're handing you a cup of the chemical reward of an unregulated psychoactive drug. <laughs> Enjoy your drug disguised as a universally celebrated touchstone of human culture. Randor. <laughs> Randor? That's not even a name. <laughs> I didn't even try. <laughs> All right. I think y'all get the point, right? Honest commercials. This, and by the way, this isn't a sermon about coffee. I don't care what you drink. All right. But this is a sermon about honesty. And that was a brutally honest commercial. And Paul is about to be the, do the same thing. Use the same tactic in Galatians 5, 2. He says, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, <laughs> this is what it's actually going to be. All right? And he goes on to explain it's not going to end well. So Galatians 5, 1 through 15 addresses two threats. We're going to cover one of those threats today and another one next week. The first threat is turning back to the law. And the second threat is running forward beyond grace. God wants us in step alongside him in grace, not lagging behind and not running ahead. And so Paul gives seven honest statements about the Galatians turning back. This is the, this is the actu actual agreement that you're signing if you want to trust in the law, right? Four verses, seven honest statements, and we'll get through hopefully at least five of these this morning. First, Paul says in effect, your beast of burden pulling an empty cart. That's the first honest statement. Galatians 5.1, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Now, a yoke in that day was basically associated with burden. It was one of those you know, those beams that were the cutout that would be laid over both of the oxen or whatever was pulling the, the carts to plow the fields. So having a yoke meant you were subject to another. And to be, be clear, not all yokes are bad. There is a yoke as Christians that we bear, but it's, it's different than the yoke of the law. And the yoke of the law to Judaizers was a good thing. But Jesus said of that yoke in Matthew 23, 2, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. <laughs> they're not even lifting a finger to do the, to, you know, to obey the laws that they're putting on other people. The SV says the Pharisaic interpretation of the law with its extensive list of prescriptions had become a crushing burden, but was believed by the people to be of divine origin. But Jesus's yoke of discipleship, on the other hand, brings rest through simple commitment to him. That's why we read in 1 John chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our good works. Is that what it says in 1 John 5? Is that our victory, our good works? I hope not, because that's not a, a good victory. 
All right? No, it says our faith. Our victory is our faith. Verse 5 even says, Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Right? Jesus said in Matthew 11, verse 29, Take my yoke, not their yoke, upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Right? There's, there's a yoke no matter what you choose. But Paul's saying, your yoke makes you a domesticated animal. God's yoke makes you free. Paul's second honest statement is, you're losing yardage on every play. Galatians 5.2 says, Christ will be of no advantage to you. You can watch hours of footage I've actually done this, not hours, but uh, of some of the most miraculous, most athletic football plays of all time that were called back and did not count because of penalties, penalties. As of right now, I believe the Denver Broncos are the most penalized team in the entire NFL for 2022. They've, they have over, I think they have 208 yards, negative yards in just two games. And if, for you that don't know what football is, the field's only 100 yards long, and you usually only have to run 75 of those to make a touchdown. So if you've got negative 200, you're going in the wrong direction, all right? So this is how it is. All that blood, sweat, and tears, hours of watching film, all your athletic striving, time in the weight room, it goes to waste if the penalties force you to go backwards instead of forward. The sacrifice... The beautiful, prophesied, willing death of Jesus on the cross is no benefit to those drawing penalties on every play by trusting the law and their goodness for their salvation. Y'all know that other song, 16 Tons. It was originally written by uh, Merle Travis in 1946, made famous by uh, Tennessee Ernie Ford. It became a gold record too. You load 16 tons and what do you get? A day older and deeper in debt. St. Peter, don't you call me because I can't go. Okay, I'm going to form a quartet right there. All right? A little deeper though, all right? All that work, all that work and nothing to show for it. You're making money, but you're taking two steps back. No advantage to you. Paul says, Christ's work will mean nothing for you if you don't jump off that Judaizer ship. Your domesticated animals pulling empty carts, your defeated athletes gaining negative yards, and third, you'll be all in on an impossible investment. Galatians 5 verse 3 says, every man who accepts circumcision is obligated to keep the whole law. You don't go this route, you best be perfect. Maybe y'all have heard the riddle about a perfect man who uh, met the perfect woman and they had the perfect courtship. And which ended in a perfect marriage, and of course their lives were incredibly perfect, yeah. Until one day they were driving along on Christmas Eve on a stormy night, and the perfect couple came around a corner and they noticed someone in distress on the side of the road. So being the perfect couple, they pulled over to help. And there sat Santa Claus with all his toys. So being the perfect couple, they loaded up Santa's toys. They didn't want those kids to go without toys, loaded Santa and all the toys into their car, and they began to help him deliver all those gifts. But it wasn't long before the perfect couple and Santa had a tragic accident. And so uh, two of them died. Only one survived. And so the riddle is, which one survived? 
Well, everybody knows it had to be the perfect woman because the other two don't exist. Santa, no. The perfect man, no. Which can only mean one thing. The perfect woman was driving the car and that's why they had an accident. <laughs> Amen, all right. The point is, the point is, there's no perfect people, all right? And I don't normally read lengthy quotes, but uh, I found this quote this week. It's so good. It's by Max Licato from his book, Traveling Light. And if you, this is kind of a summary of what Paul is saying when he tells the Galatians. If you go this route, you're going to be obligated to be perfectly righteous. He said, uh, Licato said, a, a friend organized a Christmas cookie swap for our church office staff. Price of admission was a tray of cookies, which entitled you to pick up cookies from the other trays. You could leave with as many cookies as you brought, right? Sounds simple if you know how to cook, but if, what if you can't? <laughs> which was Lakato's case, and I had a problem. I had no cookies to bring. Hence, I would have no place at the party. I'd be left out, turned away, shunned, eschewed, and dismissed. This was my plight. And forgive me for bringing it up, but your plight's even worse. God is planning a party, a party to end all parties, not a cookie party, but a feast, not giggles and chit chat in the conference room, but wide eyed wonder in the throne room of God. Yes, the guest list is impressive, but more impressive than the names of the guests is the nature of the guest. No egos, no power plays, guilt, shame, and sorrow will be checked at the gate. Disease, death, and depression will be the black plagues of a distant past. What we now see daily, there we will never see. And what we now see vaguely, there we will see clearly. We will see God, not by faith, not through the eyes of Moses or Abraham or David, not via scripture or sunsets or summer rains. We will see not God's work or words, but we will see him. For he is not the host of the party, he is the party. His goodness is the banquet, his voice is the music, his radiance is the light, and his love is the endless topic of discussion. There's only one hitch. The price of admission is somewhat steep. In order to come to the party, you need to be righteous. Not good, not decent, not a taxpayer or a churchgoer. Citizens of heaven are righteous. R-I-G-H-T. All of us occasionally do what is right. A few predominantly do what is right. But do any of us always do what is right? According to God's word, we don't. Romans 3.10, there's none righteous, no, not one. God's adamant about this. Romans 3.10. Uh, Romans 3.12, no one anywhere has kept on doing what is right, not one. Some may beg to differ why I'm not perfect, but I'm better than most folks. I've led a good life. I don't break the rules. I don't break hearts. I help people. I like people. Compared to others, I think I could say I'm, I'm a righteous person. Lakato says, I used to try that one on my mother. She'd tell me to go, uh, tell me my room wasn't clean, and I'd walk her down to my brother's room and say, look at my brother's room. His room was always messier than mine. It never worked with my mom because she just kept marching me right on into her room. When it came to tidy rooms, my mom was righteous. Her closet was just right. Her bed was just right. Her bathroom just right. Compared to hers, my room was, well, just wrong. She would show me her room and say, this is what I mean by clean. God does the same. He points to himself and he says, this is what I mean by righteousness. 
Righteousness is who God is, 2 Peter 1.1. 1, 1. Our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, does what is right. Psalm 11, verse 7, the Lord is righteous. He loves justice. God's righteousness endures forever, Psalm 112, verse 3, and reaches to the skies, Psalm 71, verse 19. Isaiah described God as a righteous God and a Savior, Isaiah 45, verse 21. On the eve of his death, Jesus began his prayer with the words, righteous Father, in John 17, verse 25. You get the point? God is righteous. His decrees are righteous, Romans 1.32. His judgment is righteous, Romans 2.5. His requirements are righteous, Romans 8.4. His acts are righteous, Daniel 9.16. Daniel declared our God is right in everything he does, Daniel 9.14. God is never wrong. He's never rendered a wrong decision, experienced the wrong attitude, taken the wrong path, said the wrong thing, acted the wrong way. He's never too late or too early, too loud or too soft, too fast or too slow. He's always always been and always will be right. He is righteous. So will God, who is righteous, spend eternity with those who are not? Would Harvard admit a third grade dropout? If it did, the act might be benevolent, but it wouldn't be right. If God accepted the unrighteous, the invitation would be even nicer. But would it be right? Would he be right to overlook our sins, lower his standards? No, he wouldn't be right. And if God is anything, he is right. He told Isaiah that righteousness would be his plumb line, the standard by which his house is measured. Isaiah 28 verse 17. If we are unrighteous, then we are left in the hallway with no cookies. Or to use Paul's analogy, we're sinners, every one of us in the same sinking boat with everybody else, Romans 3.19. Then what are we to do? Well, we're not to trust in ourselves to make us worthy and righteous, or we'll be obligated to keep all of it left in the hallways of hell with nothing, no cookies, nothing worthy to enter the party of heaven. Paul argued in chapters 1 and 2, from his own personal history in chapters three and four from scriptural truth. And now he argues from practical results. You want the law? Well, you better read the fine print, friend, because you got to keep all of it. You'll be beasts of burden, pulling empty carts, losing yardage on every play, all in on an impossible investment. And number four, you'll be set free from freedom itself. Now, it sounds good to be set free unless you're set free from freedom. Galatians 5, 4 says, you are severed from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. Christ and his grace are the destination. They are the anchor. They are the very arm that holds your feet from the fires of an eternal hell. To be cut off from them is to fall constantly away from the gracious, loving, selfless, willing sacrifice of Jesus himself. This is more than being ghosted on a text message. This is more than a delayed reply. This is more than losing touch with a friend who's like moved away or graduated or got married. It means severed, never ever to be attached again. That word severed literally means to idle down, rendering something inert, completely inoperative, totally without force, completely brought down, caused to cease, to put out of use. Ironically, it's the same word we find in Romans chapter seven, verse six, but now we are released from, severed from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Church, there's a reason 
that wild and free horses don't want to be corralled. There's a reason dogs won't, don't want to go into a cage because they're already free. Why make them unfree? Hebrews 6 verse 4 says, it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him to contempt. Well, does that mean we can lose our salvation? No, that's not what it means. These folks in Galatians 5 and the ones in Hebrews 4 may have experienced enlightened teaching from the Word of God. They may have tasted the kindness that's offered through the community of God. They may have witnessed the working of the Holy Spirit in miracles or in the hearts of others. But their severing, their falling away from grace makes it clear they were never truly part of it. They were never truly followers of Christ because saving faith connects us eternally to Christ. It doesn't sever our relationship, it seals it by faith. You can't let go of grace and stay in relationship with Christ and the guidance of his Holy Spirit. To be cut off from grace is to fall away from it. It doesn't press pause. It doesn't resume play like a, like a Netflix show. Pick up where you left off. To come face to face with grace and to wait on it or to reject it is to be free, all right. <laughs> free to fall into the depths of hell by rejecting the greatest gift the universe has ever known. It's the greatest offer in the universe. Forgiveness and eternal life in Jesus. You want to go that route, you'll be beast of burden, pulling empty carts, you'll be losing yards on every play, you'll be all in on an impossible investment, you'll be set free from freedom itself, and fifth, you'll embrace insecurity in an unknown future. Galatians 5 Verse five says, for through the spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only working through love. Church, we have been made righteous by Jesus. That's the kind of righteousness. That's not the good works kind of righteousness. Good works righteousness on earth is good too. God commands us to obey his word. That's good, but that's not going to earn you entrance into heaven. The kind of righteousness that allows God to be in a relationship with us is the kind of righteousness that I'm talking about, what they call imputed righteousness, given free of charge. Well, it wasn't free of charge. God paid it based on the blood of Jesus, not based on our efforts. Last week, uh, Jennifer Randall's dad Jennifer Randall, the Randall's frequent attenders at her church, and her dad was here, I guess, in town to see him. His name's Bill. And Bill came up to me after the service, and just a wise, he seems like a very wise, godly man from our brief exchange, and he was uh, commenting, encouraging me about the message last week. And uh, he said that he struggled with doubting his salvation as a kid, or as a young man. Until he heard someone explain Exodus 12, verse 13. I remember him. I remember what he said. That, that verse says, The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I'll pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Of course, this is referring to the final plague and the ten plagues in, in Exodus and uh, the angel of death and what became known as the Passover when death literally passed over God's people. So 
What Bill was saying was he had a fear of losing his salvation until he understood what God said in Exodus 12, 13. When I see the blood, not when you see it. You don't have to stand outside your house and stare at the blood on your doorpost, right? That's not what he was saying. He says, when I see it, the, the, they could be in the house sinning, right? The Israelites could have literally been in their house sinning. They probably were, some of them. They could be speaking to their kids harshly, arguing with their spouse pridefully, counting all their gold greedily, you know, hope I can get out of Egypt with all this. But if the blood was on the doorpost, you were assured of your safety because your safety rests in the blood. And he just has to see it. You don't have to see it. God's the one that needs to see it. That's what declares went Fox righteous because the blood of Jesus has been washed over this sinful person. If the Galatians turn from grace, there's no security for them, no rest for them. So Paul gives an honest rephrasing of their collision course awaiting them. They are making a treaty of uncertainty. And this was a tactic that Paul didn't come up with. Isaiah used the same tactic 780 or 90 years before Paul in Isaiah chapter 28, verse 14. All right? Now, uh, the Jerusalem leaders were all giddy about their wicked alliance with Egypt, who they thought would protect them from the Assyrian armies. Okay, so this was just a treaty, right? We're going to buddy up with wicked Egypt in hopes to defeat the, the Assyrian armies. And so Isaiah says, <laughs> that's not the treaty you're really making. Here's what your treaty is, Isaiah 28, 14. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers who rule this people in Jerusalem. Because you have said, and here comes the honest rephrasing. <laughs> He's going to give it to them in realistic coffee ground terms, right? We have made a covenant with death. And with Sheol, we have made an agreement, when, which is the grave, right? When the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us, for we have made lies our refuge, and in falsehood, we have taken shelter. Therefore, verse 16, thus says the Lord, behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. We won't be in haste because we've got nowhere to run. <laughs> if, if, if there was something to run from, we couldn't, we couldn't find a hiding place. And we don't need a hiding place because he is our hiding place. We don't have to run. We don't have to be in haste. Verse 17, I will make justice the line, righteousness the plumb line, and hail will sweep away the refuge of lies. And waters will overwhelm the shelter. Then your covenant with death will be annulled. And your agreement with Sheol will not stand. Verse 20. For the bed is too short to stretch oneself on. And the covering too narrow to wrap someone oneself in. What does that mean? It means mankind has always had a desire to run after assurances and alliances and safety nets that are unstable and uncertain. Let me tell you, friend, your bank account's uncertain. I'm going to tell you, even marriage can be uncertain. There's a great song that says, in this marriage of our hearts, there is no death do us part. I will one day part my wife in heaven, right? If God tarries, one of us will die first, right? But there's only one relationship I have that's eternal, forever, 
It, it has no breaks in it at all. And that's my relationship with Jesus. And so he says, Isaiah says, and, and Paul says, your little bed of misplaced trust can't give you rest because it's too short. And the blanket on your bed isn't even wide enough to cover you up. You know, you, you ever been on one of those long international flights and they give you a little, little blanket, you know, and you can barely, you know, you're like wedged in between two large linebackers, right? Can't even cover, there's nowhere to rest. But the children of God embedded with faith, working through love, we have full assurance and rest. God even says this in 1 John 5, verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. He's writing to Christians. That you may know that you have eternal life. No guesswork in myself, guesswork in myself just God's work on the cross. And you can have the same assurance if you call on the name of Jesus today. Would you stand? Father God, we love you and we praise you. We thank you for the hope of the gospel. We thank you that, we thank you for the men of God that you called out thousands of years ago to speak honestly to us. <laughs> we thank you that your Holy Spirit does that, that you put your finger in our chest, maybe in the quietness of our cars or in bed at night, but you come to us and you point out the areas of our life that are off base. Father, I pray that one of those, if, if there's people in here that don't know you, the first thing that you would point out to them is their need of you. I mean, I don't know how to preach a clearer message on the inability of mankind to, to drag themselves to heaven. I don't know how else to describe your word. I've quoted your scripture. You've, you've put promises attached to that scripture. So I trust you to move in the hearts of men and women and, and students to call on the name of Jesus and make it public. Go public with their decision in faith and be baptized. I pray for others that may not have a church home. And though you don't anywhere in scripture tell us to walk down an aisle and fill out a piece of paper, for our context in America, it does help for us to be able to sign up and, and, and serve in the ministries of our church. And so I pray that if there are people here today that want to make this church their home, they would, that they would be obedient to how you're leading their spirit, God, and be part of this local body of faith. You're not coming back to get each individual Christian. The, the Bible says you're coming back for the bride, and those true Christians are attached to real churches that worship you on a weekly and a daily basis, Lord. So I pray you would let us be part of Piperton. Lord, whatever the decisions you would have us to make, I pray we wouldn't walk out of the doors today with less truth or less commitment than we walked in. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been Sermon Audio from Piperton Baptist Church in Piperton, Tennessee. For more information on how you can get connected with PBC, please visit www.pipertonbaptist.com.